Amen. Please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 19. This morning, we are going to start looking at um, verses 1 through 29 as we continue our study of the life of Abraham. Um, as I found out uh, this weekend, this will take us two weeks to cover this section, and so we're going to cover part one this week. Um, and then part two, when we pick the series back up. And if you remember just a little bit of uh, backtracking, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been here. Um, we are um, at the city of Sodom. Uh, last, what happened, God had come to Abraham, God and two angelic hosts, and shared his plan, shared his plan to go into the city to survey the wickedness, the supposed reported wickedness that had come to his ears to see if the city was indeed as evil as it was being told him. And Abraham pleased with God, God, would you save this city if there were 50 righteous? And God says, yes. What if there was 45, then 30, then 20, then 10? And each time God says, oh yes, I would save the city for that request. And now we find that the angels indeed enter into the city to see the state of things. I also believe it's helpful as we come to this passage to remember that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, out of all of the lands of Canaan, had the opportunity to believe in, trust in, and submit to Yahweh more than any of the other cities. You go back to Genesis chapter 14, you've got the, the great um, disputes with uh, Ketelamar, um, taken over. You've got the five nations at war. Um, one of those nations taken up, Sodom. God rescues them through Abraham. Later on in that chapter, you've got this great meeting of leaders with Abraham and Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. And there, Melchizedek praises God on behalf of Abraham. Abraham gives credit to God. And so the king hears who God is and this God that's brought them victory and salvation. You even go to um, what's pertinent to our passage today, right in the middle of the, this city, you've got Lot. You've got a righteous man, a, a, a man who trusts in God, a, a man who is concerned with the wickedness of the city, and he lives as a testament against their wickedness. And if that was not enough, if, if that was not enough cases of God's mercy to be upon them, little do they know Moments prior, they've got Abraham, the man of righteousness, the man of faithfulness, praying over their city. Oh, God, would you rescue them? And so time and time and time and time again, this city has been given the opportunity to repent. This city has been given the opportunity to know truth. This city has been given the opportunity to turn from their wickedness. It's with that as a background that um, we approach very soberly one of the darker sections of Scripture. For in this passage this morning, we see the depravity of man and all of its ugliness. We also see a hint of God's wrath poured out upon sin. But even in that, and, and as dark as this passage is, lined throughout, there is a, a thread of hope. There's a thread of encouragement. There's a thread of justice and judgment that should bring us joy. With that being said, I invite you to please follow along with me. 
I would like to read for us this morning the Word of God. I'd like to begin in verse 1, and this morning I'm going to read through verse 22. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people have become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown great mercy or great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is, not, is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I, have grant, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please bow with me as we ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, we find truth in your word. You have promised that your word is breathed out by you and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for teaching, 
and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Would you complete us this day by the reading and hearing of your word? Would you equip us this day by the understanding that comes from your word through the power of your Holy Spirit? Lord, we live in challenging times. We face grave sins, just as they did in the days of Abraham. Would you be merciful to us? Would you warn us? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Through your word and by your spirit. And I pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. God's judgment upon mankind has taken place across the book of Genesis um, at least twice on a a major scale. Um, Two moments, two scenes come to mind. Uh, First, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, when God brought judgment upon the serpent, upon Adam and upon Eve, really a, a judgment upon mankind. Here we see punishment for disobedience, consequences for wrong behavior occurring such as death, being cast out of the garden, enmity and strife between husband and wife, work less productive, pain in childbirth, and a battle between the child of the serpent and the child of the woman. We could also look to Genesis chapter 6, another great act of judgment occurring in the book of Genesis. This is the world in the days of Noah. Here, the the wickedness of man has grown to such a degree that God sent forth a flood to cleanse it. It is said that there was none found righteous upon the earth. No one trusted in God. No one served God. No one followed his commands. Yet one man righteous, Noah. And here, in our passage, we come to the third great act of divine judgment. Sodom, the city of Sodom, was known for a level of sexual misconduct so out of accord with Scripture, we now call this act of misconduct sodomy. You never want to be named for something in that way. You always want to be remembered for something great. But if your name is described with something so wicked, so heinous, that gives us great pause. Now, I want to be clear What we have in our passage is not only a condemnation of these particular types of sins, and we will address that in our passage. Not only is it a condemnation of these sins, it is a condemnation of those sins, but also, and even in a bigger scale, our passage is a warning against sinfulness, all acts of sinfulness, for sinfulness places us against the commands and blessings of God. Excuse me, and taken to its ultimate conclusion, sinfulness, consuming sin and living out sin and chasing sin in our lives will consume us. It will drive us to greater and greater degrees to depravity unto our own destruction. And yet, as I, I mentioned earlier, there's encouragement in this passage for us. God is a God who keeps his word. God is a God who takes sin seriously. He is a God who is righteous and holy and consistent in his character. He is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of love. And these traits are not opposed. 
but rather work in harmony with one another. And this will become evident as we walk through our passage this morning. My goal as we study this passage, and like I said, we'll have to do it in two parts, is to come away with an appreciation or an understanding of different aspects of God. His character really is revealed in four distinct ways. The first two today. First, we will see a case made against the wicked in the first 11 verses. Here, God's holiness is on display. His holiness, His righteousness is on display in the first 11 verses. And then secondly, God's grace is shown. God's grace is shown amidst judgment, which you could also describe as God's justice. We find that in 12 through 22. And so two parts this morning, 1 through 11, holiness, 12 through 22, mercy and justice. And so let's begin by um, considering a case against the wicked. And really what we get is a confirmation. A confirmation that the Lord had heard rightly. That the city was indeed as wicked as the Lord expected or as the Lord feared it would be. This is played out before us as the angels arrive in the city. Only Lot greets them and offers them hospitality. Now, you need to recognize the city gate was a popular gathering place. It was a place to look for visitors. If you were a small city and um, you didn't get a lot of news, I grew up in a very small town. When outsiders came in, that was a big deal. Who is that? What is that vehicle? I don't recognize that face. What do you think they do? And now let's unpack every aspect of their life. You want to know your busybodies in small towns. And they wanted to know, or they should have wanted to know, and yet their lot is the only one to show kindness to these strangers, to these visitors who came late in the day. Now, we need to see this as a genuine act of hospitality. We, we need to praise Lot for this action. He cared for these guests. He treated them well. He gave them that which they needed. He didn't cast them out. He didn't leave them to the crowd. And here, the messengers, which we know as angels of the Lord, he does not, they kind of press him a bit. Oh, it's okay, Lot. It's okay. We don't need your hospitality. We're just going to hang out in the town square tonight. And Lot immediately, no, oh no, you can't do that. Oh no, you have to stay at my home. You have to be under my care. John Calvin believes this was a test of Lot's character. How would he respond? I also believe it shows one of Lot's great faults. Why did Lot want the angels to stay with him? Because he knew his neighbors were wicked people. Even bigger question. Why is he living there if he knows his neighbors are wicked people? Because he likes the look of the city. We know he picked it, the land, because it looked lush and ready for shepherding. But he both shows a, a, a righteous character and ignorance in the same swoop. Oh, no, you can't stay in the town center. Oh, you can't stay there. You must come into my house where I can care for you. You should read, protect you. And this proved to be a wise decision, didn't it? When we describe someone as wicked or we talk about someone's character as um, evil, I don't know if many of us in our imagination, I pray it's not the case, could come up with a scene like this. 
And again, I've wrestled with this all week, and, and we just need to be delicate and sober but honest. I want you to consider the totality of the scene that is before you. Men of the city, the text says, young and old, all the people to the last man storm the house of Lot. It is approached night. The men of the city have decided that there are visitors, visitors that they didn't get to interact with, and they want to know them. Down to the last man. Does that leave room for anyone else? No. It is very clear in our text, all of them, to the last man, young and old, the youngest to the oldest, storm the house of Lot. And I, I, I need to say this, and I say this um, very delicately as I can, but the goal of these men are to engage in homosexual gang rape of the angels. The text leaves room for no other interpretation. Now, liberal scholars will will argue this, and if you go look this up, there is a, a, a desire to change that word no, because not every time in Scripture does the word no mean to know sexually. But it's pretty clear in this case it does. And so I, I just, I, I encourage you, if you, you go and do some research, just be warned um, there are some, uh, some movements in, in modern scholarship to change what's going on here. And... I feel the need to take just a, just a brief pause. I want, I want to take a brief pause this morning in our story to show you or to tell you that this is wrong. I, I feel the need to do that, to explain to you why this is wrong. Um, and a, a few passages come to mind. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 20 through, 22 through 24, tagging on verse 29. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. You shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourself by any of these things. By all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. Whoever does any of these abominations, those People or persons shall be cut off. The Levitical law states very clearly homosexuality, bestiality, and incest are forbidden. Abominations before the Lord and deserve divine judgment. We could look to the New Testament. Maybe you find yourself saying, well, maybe that was just Old Testament practice, but it's not the case anymore. Well, we get clear examples in the New Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passion. For their women exchanged natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. One more place, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul to the church in Corinth. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I cannot state it any plainer than that which is laid out before the word of God. Now, why do I tell you this this morning? I tell you this this morning because culture completely and fully disagrees with that which I've proclaimed to you. It may be one day that this is the, the sermon that sends me to jail and allows us to start a prison ministry. So be it. I tell you this because this is what the word of God says and we can't avoid it. I tell you this because you need to know that this is not what you or your children are being taught by society. This is not what's being promoted on television and on the radio and in advertisements. You need to understand that the world doesn't care about the significance of that which we just read. They throw around words like abomination or destruction or cast out or cast off. They say, oh, whatever. But we as Christians have to look at this honestly and soberly. We have to be informed. We have to understand that the city of Sodom was so depraved, was so engaged in this, this violent gang level of sin that the youngest boy to the oldest man, all of them took part in it. That's how pervasive this was in their day. That's how complete and total this sin was in this city. That gives us understanding a little more when we get to the point, and we won't until the next time we come to this passage, when God brings down judgment, he does so not unjustly, but justly. It is just deserved. Now, I don't want to gloss over. There's a few things in this passage I don't want to gloss over. One, again, Lot is a righteous man. He may be ignorant, he may be foolish, but the Lord calls him righteous, particularly in the book of um, Peter. Lot, having this crowd pressed upon his house, having all of the men of his village come upon him to take out his visitors and abuse them, what does he do? He goes outside. He leaves the house. He leaves the place of safety and risks his own life for his visitors, for his guests. We would do well to consider the actions and the motives of Lot. Would we treat visitors with such respect? Would we treat them with such honor? Would we go to such lengths to protect those that are under our care? That would fit well with any of the teaching of Jesus, wouldn't it? Now, I tell you that, and I also tell you this. What wouldn't be, that's a great response. People are at your door trying to harm visitors in your house. You risk yourself on their behalf. What wouldn't be a good response is to say something like this. You know, I have two daughters. I'll trade them for the visitors. In Lot's mind, and I, I really believe he was convinced of this, the, 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 the violent homosexual sin was greater than heterosexual sin. That's a misconception. Sin is sin. Sin is sin. It makes no difference. But in his mind, he's offering the lesser to prevent the greater. Again, hear me clearly. That was wrong. He sinned against this. 
but he is so overwhelmed. He is, he is being pressed upon him. He is, his life is at danger. His visitors' lives are at danger, and he's trying to find an escape. And so, it would have been a sin even if they had agreed, and this is a really bad sign of parenting. Like, none of us should look, we should look to Lot for his courage. None of us should look at him for his parenting advice. As we continue in chapter 19, it becomes even more apparent. But don't dare to be a Lot in that way. And this outrages the crowd. That's not what they want. That's not their desires. Why violate these women when we can forcefully take these two men and have our way with them? And then they tell Lot, oh, yeah, Lot, well, we're going to do it to you first. We're going to do what we intended to, you, to them to you. We're going to violate you worse and then get to them. And here, here is a, a, a beauty of the passage. It is, it's one that, that um, it, it, it's easy to overlook. God grabs Lot. God grabs Lot, brings him out of death, of abuse, of violence done against him. The angels take him by the arms and pull him back into the house. They bring him to safety. God brings safety to Lot. And I, I, love, I love what, um, what the crowd says. That there's a lot of um, almost ironic um, justice in this passage. This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. They're yelling at him like, who are you to judge? And, and, and really in, in divine irony, God's saying, he is. He's the one to judge. He's the one being righteous. You're the ones in the wrong. They're looking at him, mocking him. Who, can you, who are you to judge us? And God's like, I am, through him. We do not excuse his sin of offering up his daughters, but we do see his desire to prevent a great degree of wickedness. And then in that, a second moment of, again, divine judgment and almost divine comedy, the angels strike with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they themselves wore themselves out groping for the door. This should be read both literally and metaphorically. They were literally blinded. They couldn't see. They could not get to the door. They could not make their way. But this is also indicative of a spiritual blindness. They were blind to the truth. They were so consumed with sin that they were willing to carry out great acts of wickedness in order to feed their appetites. I believe at this point we have a clear case against the city of Sodom. I don't think any of us, if we were in the seat of judge, would need any more evidence. I think that's a pretty clear-cut case. But before I move on to a moment of grace, let me just say this. This scene, this moment, our time together this morning, it should drive all of us to our knees in prayer. We should either find ourselves in response to this passage on our knees in prayer for thanksgiving or mercy. In thanksgiving or in mercy. Because it's only by the mercy of God that Lot was not a part of the crowd. It's only by the mercy of God that he sought to do that which was right as opposed to joining in the sin. In the same way, it is only by the mercy of God you and I are not considered amongst the sodomites. We all know the degrees of our heart. We all know our capacity to sin. And it is only the mercy of God that keeps us from it. I'm reminded of the words of 
brother of Christ, James, James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. As we consider a passage that, that, that speaks to awful, unspeakable wickedness, may we not shove it to the side and go, oh, that was terrible for them, but look at me over here in my nice, clean, undefiled state. May we, as we look to them, go, oh, but for the grace of God, so would be me. Will we cry out for God's mercy and for God's help? And could we know that he offers it when we ask? And the answer to that is yes, and that is seen as we continue in our passage. And you can imagine the moment in the house. Lot's pulled back in. He now knows something's different about these guys. They're not just strangers. They just, uh, they just blinded an entire town. Uh, something's going on. He may not know that they're fully angels, but he's, they've got some divine in them. Um, I'm going to listen to what they say. He was a very captive listener from that point forward. Well, kind of. They tell him, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. We are about to destroy it because the outcry has become great before the Lord. You have salvation. You have escaped. Judgment is coming. Divine judgment is upon this town, this city. Get out. And in an act of great divine mercy, you get out, your family get out, and anyone that you're related to, get out. Lot's the only righteous one in the city. He's the only one. God said he'd save it for ten. We found one. Well, doesn't that also include his family? Would they be considered righteous or unrighteous? Well, they're considered righteous by him, through him. Be saved because of Lot. You could read that. Be rescued because of him, because of his righteousness, the same way with Noah. Noah was righteous before the Lord, and by him his wife and his children and their wives were saved. Here, the, the, the angels of the Lord are offering salvation as a sign of God's grace and God's mercy. Lot would receive undeserved pardon, while the wicked would receive divine and deserved judgment. But here's a sad truth. A sad truth is that the gospel is often folly to those who are perishing. He's got sons-in-laws in the city. They're told, get out, flee, come with me. Ah, that's a funny joke, Lot. We're not going anywhere with you. I want you to stop. Think about something for a minute. Two things. One um, is a textual issue, and then one's a spiritual matter. One, textually. Um, again, um, liberal scholars love to try to take apart this passage. How can he have sons-in-laws and also virgin daughters? Um, were they married and then they just never had intercourse? That's not the case. The case is, if you read the text clearly, they were engaged and not yet married. You have to remember Jewish practice. When you became betrothed or engaged, it was much more serious. It was much more final than today. You know, we can get in and out of engagements, but when you were engaged, you were practically married, so much so they equivocated the two. And so he had sons-in-laws and virgin daughters, and that's not a contradiction. So there's a technical. I just encourage you to, to know that um, because that can be problematic um, with some of the scholars, spiritually speaking. Sons-in-laws, what gender would they be? Men, male. What did the text just tell us in the first 11 verses? Where were all of the men of the city? 
outside the house trying to destroy it in order to rape the angel. So where were Lot's sons-in-laws? Outside the house with all the men of the city trying to rape the angel. And yet, God, despite the fact that they had the same sin upon them that was going to bring down divine judgment, they were offered grace. They were offered salvation even though they deserved the same judgment. Oh, don't miss that. Oh, don't miss that in this passage. Often, grace and mercy is offered to those that do not deserve it. Because let's be real here, which one of us does? But sadly and unfortunately, the many that are engaged in sin and pursue that lifestyle and seek it above all else, they laugh. They laugh, much like those in the days of Noah. They laugh, they mock. What are you building a boat for, Noah? What's rain? I don't know what this rain is. But God has been merciful. And so we see God's mercy turn more narrowly to Lot, his wife, and his kids. We look at the section of 15 to 22. We realize Lot's a bit of, he's kind of lazy. He's kind of lazy. He didn't want to leave. He was dragging his feet. He, he wasn't ready to, to go on this journey. And I don't know if it, he didn't take it seriously or if he just thought he had all the time in the world. But again, for the second time in our passage, the Lord grabbed him. The Lord grabbed him. The men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And the Lord, being merciful to him, brought him out and set him outside the city. Let me just say this. Sometimes the Lord has to deal roughly with us for our own good and for our salvation. May we appreciate, maybe not in the moment, but later in life as we look back at those times when the Lord had to handle us to save us. And it may not be pleasant in the time, but oh, will we be grateful for it when we look back upon it. For the second time, the Lord drags him to salvation. And then again, he gets lazy on us. Run to those hills over there? Like way over there, over there? I can't run that far. Like really, God? Like, mm, how about that city? How about that one? That one's closer. The, the name of the city means a little city. That little city. Can I, can I run that far? The angel's fine. That's fine. We will withhold the judgment that is deserved. We will save that whole city. They would have been in the region. They would have been recipients of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But yet another time, God is merciful. I will save Lot. I will save his family. I will save the useless sons-in-laws. And then I will save the city, Zoar. All because you are mine. You belong to me. Even though Lot has weak faith, even though Lot does not fear God as he should, God is merciful to him. Lot is not the ideal believer, and yet he is brought, literally carried, to safety by the Lord. Now, just as I said earlier, we should feel the weight of our own sin in light of this section. And just as much as we should do that, we should be all the more thankful for our salvation in the second half. For if we're honest, aren't we all like Lot? Even when we obey, we do so half-heartedly. We do not give our full effort. 
Sometimes the Lord has to carry us by the arm and place us out of a situation to save us from it. Ultimately, we confess that the Lord had not, if He had not called us out of our lifestyle, we would still be in the city. If the Lord had not called us from our sin and from our desires, we would be still in the city. Let us confess this day that salvation is about and belongs to the Lord. We receive it because He gives it. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, rather because He is righteous, just, and merciful. God saved Lot because God is good, not because Lot is good. And I can't give you a a message of hope and encouragement more than that today. For God treats you the same way. God saves you not because you are good, but because He is good. Not because you are full of mercy, but because He is full of mercy. Not because you are just, but because He is just. But make no mistake, God is also righteous. And God's wrath upon sin will be carried out to its fullest extent. And we will see that as we continue in our passage next time. Would you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, this is a difficult passage. These are hard words to consider. They're not topics that we often think about or or talk about. And yet, Lord, you have declared your word is for our good. You know the temptations of man. You know the desires to sin. You know how easily we can be led astray. Father, I pray that we hate sin, particularly these types of sins. But even more so, Lord, would we hate the types of sins that we love, that we cherish, that we desire so much so that we're willing to do foolish things in order to carry them out. Forgive us, O Lord. Help us to turn from our sin, to repent and turn from it, to trust in you, even if you have to carry us out with your own hand. Father, we thank you that salvation is from the Lord. And by the power, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we too can be saved. We thank you for that message of hope, even amidst this dark cloud. We pray that you would continue to be upon us in this time. In Christ's name, amen.